oh, I was going to meet up with you when you were in Sydney, Stephen, and I had to. What happened? Make it in the end. Oh dear. I I think I I, I don't know the the city people were booking into all these things and then um. I couldn't make it to meet you. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. Well, uh, uh, we, we, we meet at last by uh, power of radio. Actually, this could be our intro, by the way, um, to the podcast. Yeah. You guys talking about the time you, you didn't meet up in Sydney. And then... <laughs> Other exciting events. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome to Alpha Chat, FD Alphaville's now simply frequent podcast about whatever we fancy talking about. I'm David Johan in London, and I'm joined here in the studio by our guest, Stephen Englander, head of City uh, G10 FX Strategy. Hi, Stephen. Hey, good evening and good morning. <laughs> and in Australia, by my colleague, Kate McKenzie. Hi, Kate. Hi, good morning. Hey. Um, we're all going to talk about Abenomics, which is, uh, of course, Japan's attempt to get its economy going. Uh, using the absurdly annoying metaphor of three arrows, which are of monetary, fiscal, and structural policies. The first of which is currently the most aggressive, and the last of which has yet to be announced. We might actually go to Kate first. What is yesterday for her and this morning for me, the Bank of Japan put out the statement from its latest monetary policy meeting, and I'm not really sure what was in it because I didn't read it because Kate did. Uh, yeah, I love reading these things. Um, well, this one was uh, was fairly brief, um, not as brief as previous months, but it was really just saying they're going to continue purchasing assets at the same rate that they um, already committed to back in early April. Um, and it had a had a few words to say about the economic outlook. That was the only other thing, really. And um, it did mention that there were signs of uh, possible improvement, I think. I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, it, uh, um, but also that still lots of risks for the Japanese economy um, and also for the U.S. and European economies. So, um, Par for the course kind of stuff. To it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There wasn't, wasn't a lot to it. I think from the statement, um, there was a bit of expectation that they might explicitly mention that they were watching bond yields. They didn't mention that in the statement, but um, Governor Kuroda did say that in the press conference a bit later. But, you know, they're watching the yields of as you would expect, they've noticed that the, the, there was um, a fairly sharp rise in um, JGB yields recently. And um, yeah, this is um, even even while the Bank of Japan was buying large quantities of its bonds, the bond yields were spiking up, which brings to mind like a two thousand and three bar shock. But I'll, I'll, as you said, go to Stephen. Exactly. I think he's gets everyone a bit worried. Yeah. So what? So what? Would, what was he, he? It seemed like he was saying Stephen in the press conference, just simply saying, well. You know, we have the people who are actually buying and watching markets, and they can adjust things in a minor way as they go along. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, it is. But um, the end weekend, as um, you know, when when the headlines from the press conference came out, I, th- I think coming into the meeting, there was very little expectation that there'd be a significant change in monetary policy. But I think that you know, um, by implication, the fact that he mentioned. Um, some concern about the level of yields. He said that they had some flexibility in um, their purchases in order to deal with the yields. I, I think it sent a signal that they were um, concerned, even if if the signal was noncommittal, and that was enough to be interpreted as 
you know, I'd say moderately dovish um, in relative to expectations in the market. What is the expectation that if the yields keep spiking or rising, that they'll step in and increase their purchases of JGBs to compensate? Um, I, I think the answer is that it depends because till now, um, you know, say since J, 10-year JGB yields broke, broke 60 uh, basis points, the Nikkei is up about uh, 1,700 points. So it's hard to make the case that, you know, asset markets in Japan have been devastated by the run-up in yields. But I think that if they ever begin to fear that yields were going up independently and sort of inhibiting their ability to uh, attain their targets, you know, or implicit targets with respect to the uh, to the Nikkei or, or you know, even, even deeper in the background with respect to, to yen weakness, that, um, you know, they would step in and intervene and, and, and try and smooth things out and, and prevent any sort of panic from, from emerging in the JGB market. And certainly the Ministry of Finance has a tremendous interest in making sure that debt servicing costs remain stable and low, and they would only encourage them to, to do this. And, I mean, so the idea is that unless we see a yen strength, Nikkei weakness, the JGB increase probably isn't that dangerous as it stands. I, I think till now they'd say that, you know, maybe a little bit of it would concern them, That, but the bulk of going, say, from uh, the 40 or 50 basis points right after the April 4th meeting to almost 90 points now, I, I think most of it they would see as being benign, the same way that the Fed has seen most of the backing up of U.S. bond yields as being benign, given how well the equity market has performed and over this period. Kate, I know you've written about this. I mean, a certain proportion, or a, a, an easy way, or maybe a sensible way to look at the JGB yield increases is as a very direct sign of Abenomics working. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's a component of it. You'd, you'd, you'd hope, I suppose, um, BOJ policymakers are, are hoping that a big component of it too, um, because obviously if expectations of growth are rising, then expectations of inflation, of uh, higher inflation, and um, we can see that from um, the uh, the break-even interest rate that it has continued to, to climb. That does it does look like there's an argument, a good argument to be made that part of part of this rise is just about people expecting these policies to work. It's expectation. And I, I suppose that leads us on to. The obvious abonomics question is how do we actually know it's working? I mean, yen 20% weaker, Nikkei up, um, good GDP data, even if the series is volatile, um, growth forecasts up, earnings up, corporate earnings up, etc. But you've got stagnant wages and you've got um, a kind of a, a weakening trade balance. Is that a fair? Yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's very, very early when you think about it. And, I, um, you know, Markets are very impatient for, for signs of these things, but um, I, I think you know what you're saying about wages and, and the trade balance in particular is, is really true. Um, the I mean, yen's been weakening for a while, and the trade data that came out yesterday for April was not that inspiring. I think it was the second month in a row of year-on-year growth for exports, which was great, but the rate of imports grew at a faster rate, so the deficit was bigger, and um, and that all suggests. You know, it just underlines how vulnerable Japan is to, um, or, or you know, the, the, the weaker yen's a double-edged sword for that economy because uh, they have little choice but to import a lot of energy commodities. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of um, reports recently of, you know, uh, Japanese business people and, um, and exporters even not 
wanting the end to weaken that much more. I don't know how representative this is of the, of the, Jap- Japanese. You know, the whole economy, <clears throat> but there's definitely... Japanese officials are coming out now saying that you know it might have gotten stronger. They might want to. They might want it to get stronger. Might be weak enough at this point. But I might throw that over to Stephen, our FX expert. Um, I, I think a lot depends on how you define work, and you put a work in quotation marks. I mean, it's clear that inflation expectations have begin to uh, begun to uh, edge up. Um, the problem I, I think is this: that they've defined working in in terms uh, purely of hitting their inflation targets. And, you know, I I think that it's, you know, most people would agree that economies that are well-functioning don't have deflation. Uh, But they've sort of turned it around and and kind of said, well, if we we can get inflation, by definition, means we have a well-functioning economy. And, you know, I I think there's a lot more skepticism about that. Um, You know, many countries have tried reflation over the past 50 years and and expanding balance sheets. And, you know, the history of the post-World War II is a history of inflation. And it's not as if those inflationary episodes have been um, economic successes in most cases. And and I think in in terms of Japan, where where, uh, the skeptics are most concerned is that uh, you, you can talk about where you want the Nikkei to go. You can talk about where you want inflation to go. It's a lot harder, it seems, to pin down Japanese officials with respect to uh, whether GDP growth at the end of this process, if it succeeds, is it going to be 20% higher, 10%, 5 to you know, what the number is, because they seem to stop at the inflation number and never go further. Well, I mean, just I suppose one re- quick response to that would be if you're looking at an economy in a liquidity trap, if you're looking at an economy that's still suffering from the effects of a balance sheet recession in that people are, uh, there might be fear of borrowing, fear of lending, that kind of stuff, psychological fears, as Richard Koo would put it, you might actually have to um, come up with, a, as a central bank, as a, a credible promise to be irresponsible. Um, I think this is one of Krugman's points, that is um, you have to convince investors that uh, it would not rain in monetary expansion once the economy was at full employment and inflation was starting to rise. So is not targeting inflation not a decent first step in this this scenario? Well, I, I think you can say that inflation being higher is a uh, necessary condition. Whether it's a sufficient condition is, is, is a much different question. And when you go through the list of structural issues that Japan has, starting with demographics, and what seems clear is that there's a political consensus that immigration is not on, on, on the table right now, and inflexibilities, labor, product, capital markets... Um, it's you know the they've promised to come up with a set of structural policies to address this, uh, but these were the same structural issues that were on the table 25 years ago, um, and I know this because I was working at the OECD then and was brought up with you know at, at that time when we were involved in a structural adjustment project and you know at the very least you can say that they've shown reluctance over the last quarter century to really address these issues. So you think that eventually, no matter what happens, you're going to have a structural deficit here and that there's not going to be a will to kind of uh, change the mindset on immigration. And what about like women in the workplace? I know, I think Cardiff's got an epic post for us coming up at some stage on this, but that would be, that's reasonably high in the list of structural reforms that people are looking for. I I guess, but the, you know, there's a reason they're not in the workplace. Um, I doubt that, it, you know, given the age of the labor force, both men and women are, are relatively old, so there, there isn't a supply of young women to come into the labor force right now. What you do to encourage a 45- or 55-year-old woman to come into the labor force if she hasn't been there 
is is unclear. Um, you know, so so I think that the you know the, the the broader question is you know maybe they will address these and and you know God bless them if they do, uh, but it's hard to see doubling the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan as as taking a sixty five year old Japanese worker and making him or her thirty five years old. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think I think the thing is also I mean they they you know assuming these third arrow policies when they are revealed are are, you know, much more impressive than anything that's been attempted in the last 25 years, then even so, it's hard to see how that's going to work quickly. And, you know, whereas the monetary policy experiments already started that, you know, whatever happens with structural reform, they not only have to sound impressive, but, you know, work. And it's it's such a big difference in the terms of of the timing between those two approaches. But can I also say that, you know, I think that, Monetary policy is the fun part of trying to expand your economy, right? Because nobody's complaining that the the Nikkei is up by by fifty percent. Certainly, Japanese business isn't complaining that that the yen is weaker. Uh, when the question becomes, you know, what do you do to increase competition, increase productivity? That's a lot more painful, and uh, most countries are unwilling to do it. I mean, Europe has done it under tremendous pressure. Uh, much less clear that we're seeing it elsewhere that um, they may choose at the end of the day to uh, just go with the fun part. And and I think that the BOJ is aware of this because, you know, Kuroda has, has indicated that what he thinks he's doing is giving them a window of opportunity uh, through monetary expansion to, uh, to do these structural reforms, but they have to take that baton and, and really take it seriously and go ahead and do that. And, and you know, I, I, I must admit that I'm a little bit skeptical that they are going to accept that and the pain that it has entailed elsewhere um, in terms of you know, pursuing their structural policies. I think we're introducing, I, I pain a, in the we're introducing a guest to, to AlphaChat. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably a good time to say that um, Japanese corporate chiefs have been signing off their emails with all hail Abe. So I quite like that. Do you want to... Um, do you want to ask her opinion? Ask, ask my daughter's opinion. I think that's... <laughs> that's she, I, I, think she's, um, I think she's bullish. That's a happy sound. <laughs> <Leave it> on. <laughs> okay, okay. It's also Peppa Pig. That's, oh, the, okay. other, that's the other view. <laughs> she's a South Korean sympathizer. I, I, I thought I heard her say bye, bye Nikkei, but hedge it. <laughs> We could call this Alpha Chat Anya edition. I quite like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think we should to to channel Kyle Bass a bit. I think you are actually quite bearish abonomics, right? Do you actually see in like three to four years' times a proper kind of blowout here, a bond blowout, like a proper disaster? What the thing is, I I think that hitting the inflation targets is is easier than it sounds. That it, it's not as if they've doubled their balance sheet four times in the, in the last 20 years and that you've had officials getting up and in Gordon Gecko-like fashion saying inflation is good, uh, you know, both the, the central bank and the Ministry of Finance. I, I think that with this kind of policy support and this aggressive type of movement um, in, in terms of the balance sheet, that they, they probably will get to their inflation target quicker than they think or, or quicker than the market thinks right now. Uh, the issue is whether um, it gets some real growth in, in the sense that you know we would think is significant and enables them to 
get out of their fiscal problems, which are immense, and, and their structural problems, which are immense. And, you know, I think that they will hit their inflation target, but I, I think that the that hitting that target won't buy them the happiness that the IMF and, and you know, some of the Fed people are implying that it will buy them. And do you see uh, a bond blowout? Well, <laughs> there is a bit of an issue that, you know, right now they're getting real yields and debt servicing is not that onerous. When Japanese investors see inflation at 2% and the BOJ trying to keep yields well below 2%, uh, they may not think that's a very good deal. And and the problem for Japan is that if yields rise, the debt servicing on 230% of GDP, probably higher by the time um, you know, we get there in two years, that, that becomes very onerous very quickly. So uh, the answer is, yeah, I, I do think that there's some issues there that, the, that they will have a very difficult time, even if they succeed in, in you know, what they say they're trying to do. And, and the outcome is likely to be a weaker yen and, and probably weaker than the, you know, 105, 110 type of cons- consensus that uh, seems to be in the market right now. Kate, are you... Yeah, I'm just thinking. Um, Sorry. I'm wondering what. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm wondering um, also about. I know David, you had a post earlier this week about um, the banks, uh, the Japanese banks, JGB um, assets as well. And uh, I know that there seems to be a bit of fear around that, particularly the smaller and regional banks. Um, but uh, you know, they're, they're exposed to losses on on you know a big part of their portfolio here. But at the same time, I mean, it looks like some of the banks are diversifying away from JGBs as well, which I guess, uh, you know, might not have the desired effect in terms of the yield again. But yeah. I wonder, I mean, it's very early to really know anything about that, but I, I know I was looking at a, um, a report that the Japan Post Bank is beginning to share its JGB holdings and... You know, it's a fairly it's a fairly big holder. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering. I guess I, I, I'm Stephen. I guess you look at the funds from um, from the flows from various types of Japanese funds as well. And it, it, I'd be really interested in what you're seeing in aggregate going on there in terms of I guess diversifying away from JGBs and also how much that's going overseas. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think the scary part for the yen is is that the um, yen selling that we've seen so far has been largely a, a Western type of selling, London time zone, New York time zone, uh, not so much a Tokyo time zone development. We're seeing it on on, on the edges, and and there's some intimations that there, you know, some big institutions are thinking about it, but nothing, no, no very concrete evidence, and so. If you do see uh, Japanese institutions beginning to drop their hedges on their foreign investments or beginning to sell the yen, um, that could be a very powerful leg further down on the yen. And I think the the thing you have to understand or one should understand about quantitative easing, and it's the way it's played in all countries, is that the unambiguous trade is the equity market because basically what the central bank is telling you is that we're going to squeeze you out Free basis points. Yeah, we're going to squeeze you out of the bond market to make it, you know, make it just not worth your while to be there. And so any kind of yield you can get from a dividend uh, yielding stock becomes precious to you. And uh, the 
expansion of the balance sheet, it also encourages you to take your money abroad to any place that offers you a better yield. So I, I think the answer is that you can't judge um, the success, if you want to call it that, even by, by, by looking at the JGB market, because it depends on, on the interplay between the Bank of Japan and the market. But if the equity market is going up and the yen is going down, I think they'll think that they've done a great job. I, I guess, yeah, that's, I mean, I mean so, so far at least. That's yeah, which, why there's still a lot of optimism around, isn't, isn't it? I suppose that's the point of that's the that's kind of the if we're going to sum this up at the end, it'll be like so far, but we can't tell. And Stephen will make a horrible sound about three years' time in a disaster. Um, well, but they're the most popular so, government think... in a long time in Japan, and and so they have no incentive to stop. And they might actually scrap the consumption tax um, if elections go their way, which is an interesting idea too. Uh, my sense is that Japanese officials are very committed to the consumption tax, um, that they would they think it's the basis of any kind of fiscal reform. And even if they have to temporarily increase spending in order to offset the hit to core inflation, yeah, the, the yeah, and the demand impact that they're going to do it. Um, but, you know, otherwise, the, the problem that they face is that, uh, you know, the structural deficit is so high that even if the unemployment rate dropped by, say, 2% from foreign change to two and change, um, it would take the fiscal deficit down maybe from 8 to 9% to 6 or 7%, and they'd be at full employment with a massive hole that they had no chance of filling. So they have to find some way of filling that hole. And the sales tax is, is a tremendous part of it. Um, it's just not clear that the numbers add up, that you can have the sales tax, you can have the inflation, you can have any kind of real yield, um, and the debt dynamics don't get painful very quickly, and the yen gets painful very quickly. Mm. It is, I mean, I mean, like you were saying before, that it, it is the, this, this focus on the inflation target is kind of all well and good as long as everything, you know, as long as the other elements of this... Um, plan go ahead and we don't know that and um you know inflation's um what and and you know a necessary condition but not but not sufficient um as you put it so yeah again david sorry too early to tell yeah and i think you ended your post with uh, or a post recently assessing economics saying it's going to be all about timing which i think remains a decent sign-off um so I, I might just ask Stephen one more question on an FX front. The idea that um, Bank of Japan and the yen are just a dangerous, destabilizing force in the, in the region, particularly like the South Koreans and stuff, and they're not like they're basically just exporting deflation and the threat of more devaluation. Well, at, at, at the th risk of offending um, you know UK residents, I, I think what's happened over the last ten years, if you look at the um, Japanese trade share versus the you know the the trade that's done by mainland Asia, their their immediate competitors. Uh, ten years ago, Japan to mainland Asia is what Germany is to the eurozone. Now, Japan to mainland Asia is what the UK is to the eurozone, and and that's not you know UK went from or euro sterling went from sixty five to ninety five. Now it's eighty five, and nobody's sleep has been disturbed. Uh, by that, I, I think that you know they just don't count as much uh, globally. Their their trade share 
I, in mid nineties was almost eleven uh, percent. Now my my I think they're probably below four percent. So the impact overall just isn't as serious as people make it out to be. I don't think at the end of the day it's going to be as big, and I also don't think that the impact of exchange rate depreciation is as powerful as you know when you take Econ one hundred and one and somebody puts it on a blackboard because. Most times, um, developed economies, OECD economies, compete on the basis of technology, branding, um, you know, uh, product differentiation, specialization, value added, and turning around and kind of saying, "Look, we're we're you know we're not going to do any of that stuff. We're just going to be cheaper." Means that you're competing against a lot of countries that are a lot poorer than you are, and it's usually an indication of failure, not an indication of success. And that's another sterling cautionary tale. Indeed, yeah. and, and and it was the story of the U.S. from 2002 to 2012 when it depreciated without much to show for it. All right, so no linear effect really. Um, no, that's fair. Um, Kate, anything else? Uh, no, I'm going to have to run, actually. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think it's been really interesting, and and you know, I think Stephen's last. Your last point there, Stephen, is just, you know, getting back into that that question of what is, gro- you know, what is this growth like? What is the sustainable growth that they that um, the Japanese government is hoping to achieve? And it's much more, it, it, it's it's so much more um, daunting a prospect than just some, you know, fairly bold monetary policy. And and you know, presumably there's all there's all kinds of um, vested interest and some political barriers to to really making those those sort of improvements happen to the economy where they are you know adding more value and um, you know branding improving branding and uh, those those kinds of things that actually really really help an economy grow especially an economy where you know the demographics are really going against it um, participation rate maybe will be able to be improved enough to help. Um, like you said, immigration doesn't seem to be on the table, so there's, there's some some really serious factors working against them. Um, I'm going to wrap it up, I think, and say thank you very much to Kate, particularly because we should really point out it's like half six over there, isn't it? Yeah, actually, it's just about it's just about seven o'clock now. Okay, so that's like really impressive. Yeah. Well now. done. Yeah, <laughs> like. And thank you too for staying up late. No, we we had, we had a beer. It was great. We're, we're fine. <laughs> Some of us had more than one. <laughs> okay. Um, so thanks right. to thanks to Kate and um, and Anya. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yep, Anya. Yep. Kate and Anya, and um, to she's, Stephen she's for coming in. The TV now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. See you guys. Bye. Good morning, Kate. Good night. Bye. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 